Hello, and welcome to What's Killing My Kale. This podcast is a production of the University of Minnesota Extension, hosted by Extension educators Annie Claude and Natalie Hoytel. In each episode, we interview a farmer, researcher, or educator about a timely topic around growing fruit and vegetable crops in Minnesota. Usually we talk about pests, but sometimes we venture into other important issues of the moment. Hello, this is Natalie, and I am here with John Logring, who is our wildlife extension specialist. He's also a professor at the U of M in Crookston and is a wildlife biologist. And so we brought John on today to talk about vertebrate pest management on fruit and vegetable farms. John, do you want to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your connection to vertebrate pest management? Oh, absolutely. Good day, Natalie and everyone else. Um, Again, I'm John Logering. I work here in Crookston, but I also travel statewide and and often uh, chat with folks about vertebrate pest management. I really have been doing that since uh, sometime in the late 1990s when I was, uh, I filled in for a person who went on sabbatical and found out that I kind of enjoyed the work. Um, it, it's a little bit outside of my normal expertise because I'm, I, all of my research and such is on wild birds, you know, forest songbirds, for instance, is the last project I've been working on. So, um, so my perspective is really from as a wildlife biologist, you know, I, I kind of in, got into this field because I love wildlife, but I also you know, recognize that everyone's, I guess all, uh, all people on the planet don't share my enthusiasm. And so I guess I hope to improve everyone's understanding of wildlife and offer solutions that work and try to solve the problems that we, we often face as humans and wildlife uh, sometimes come into conflict. So that's kind of my perspective on, on where I come from. Great. And hopefully we can integrate some of that into the podcast, kind of talking about how do we do vertebrate pest management in a way that's responsible and doesn't harm wildlife to the extent that that's possible. So it's a good perspective to have, I think, when we talk about this. Um, So obviously vertebrate pest management is a problem just from a yield perspective. Um, If animals are consuming our plants, that's a problem. Um, But can you talk just a little bit about other reasons? Um, I guess I'm thinking specifically about food safety, why we should be concerned about feeding damage um, or just wildlife in our fields. Yeah, absolutely. Certainly, yeah, yield is the biggest, usually the concern, um, but wildlife can have impacts in, you know, gardens or commercial gardens um, in many other ways, such as germination or, or uh, early in the growing season or or right at the end at harvest time for appearance. Um, and then I think your question really is more leaning towards uh, some of the, the wildlife uh, diseases that uh, that we sometimes bump into. Um, so likely those, those, uh, the largest concern for these zoonotic diseases that can be passed from wildlife to humans, um, it, it's a, it's a fairly minor concern, um, for most producers, um, in the field. Uh, it certainly has some impact on, on things like buildings and sheds and places where you're preparing, um, or processing vegetables. Uh, you know, that we, we generally think about two groups, birds, um, uh, and, and I would say for most of these things, almost all of them are related to essentially natural uh, bacteria that reside in the uh, gut flora of, of birds and mammals. You know, birds uh, can commonly carry uh, the bacterium that, that causes a salmonella or salmonellaosis, the, the, the sickness that you can get. Um, so if you have a lot of birds in the fields or a lot of birds in your processing facility, then you're potentially exposed to those bacteria. Um, if the foods or the vegetables or the whatever you're processing is eaten raw, um, 
and and so I mean obviously one of the easiest ways is either keep the birds outside of those facilities or fields or uh, you know wash vegetables or wash your your, your produce before you eat it um, and, and of course mammals have the same uh, similar sort of thing with E. coli bacteria that thrives in our digestive tract I mean there are lots of E. coli in human digestive tracts as well as wildlife and it uh, turns out if uh, wildlife are walking through the fields, um, they aren't quite as uh, um, uh, discriminating. Uh, they don't have a porta potty to to run to, so they, you know, they'll uh, they'll uh, defecate in the fields, and then and then those bacteria are present. And this is, you know, sort of one of the occasionally we get these big outbreaks of um, of E. coli in salad mixes and these sorts of things um, from commercial salads uh, in California, and, and that is often related to some sort of wildlife uh, event. Right. Uh, obviously, growers fencing would help with that, or you know, consumers washing their produce uh, uh, help with that sort of thing. But those are those are kind of the two big categories of threats we see, I guess, from wildlife in the field. Right. Okay. So let's start in actually out of the field, kind of in the pack shed area, uh, where probably mice and rats as well as birds tend to be the largest concerns. Yep. So one thing that I've seen a few producers using um, as kind of a creative solution if they can't keep things out structurally, because a lot of pack sheds tend to be a little bit more open to the environment, um, is these machines that emit really high frequency sound. Um, do you have recommendations about that, things that might be better solutions? Um, I'm also curious to hear if those types of machines have impacts on other wildlife that people should be thinking about. Sure. Um, th this is this is the the segment of the uh, of the podcast where I'm sure I'm going to pick on someone's favorite uh, favorite technique. Um, um, unfortunately, <laughs> um, you know I am aware, you know, of several producers who swear by uh, using these sonic or ultrasonic devices that uh, you know they're designed to emit. A, uh, sound waves at a frequency higher than is audible by humans so they don't tend to disturb the people but they they uh, have impacts on creatures um, you know the, the, the challenge that I face is if you really try to dig into the science as to you know having these things independently tested and verified um, there, there really is precious little science here that would be supportive of these high frequency uh, uh, devices um, hmm. admittedly the you know consumer if you go to the websites of the producers of these devices they'll, they'll they say a lot of things but uh, um, you know but the independent testing uh, tends to, to show them not having a lot of efficacy there's some evidence that they do discourage some insect pests uh, but that's we're not you know that's not really not, not my area mm -hmm. um, but there are really limited results on discouraging things like rodents, um, which is usually the the target thing that you're trying to trying to discourage. Um, there are some papers from the um, I can recall a study back in I can't remember the 1970s or 80s that found some success with these high quality commercial setups to discourage rodent. Uh, specifically, it was about mice and rats in in uh, in commercial facilities and buildings. Um, but but most systems today, my guess is they're not really they haven't really been uh, scientifically tested. Um, the wildlife damage folks have been testing many of these products pretty much since they first started coming out in the 1980s, um, and you know I I, I 
was thinking about this uh, recently and, and uh, poked through a couple of papers and pretty much through the, uh, the most recent reference I could find is in the mid-2000s and they, and they still fail to find any effectiveness of, uh, of these devices. So my, my unfortunate response is uh, you're probably better off investing in other strategies that tend to protect those areas and, and again most of them are physical or barrier methods or exclusion methods or those sorts of things because well rodents are uh, one characteristic we'll all agree on is that they are persistent um, but right. but in terms of those sonic devices there there's not a lot of there's not a lot of evidence out there you know if they're working great for you fantastic keep working if you know if you've bought one and it isn't working well maybe you need to reconfigure it and try to try to see if it will if it'll change something um, but I guess if you haven't invested in one I guess I would I would shy away from investing it in it until uh, some of that science is a little more clear hmm. okay so what then would you recommend in a situation where someone has a pack shed that's more open to the environment um, or maybe using a really old barn that's got some holes in it, I guess those holes can be patched, but in a, in a system that's more open to the environment, would you suggest some sort of netting? Would you suggest something sturdier than that? Yeah, it really depends on how long you're going to be using the facility and, and to what standards you need to, you know, to maintain it, of course. I mean, if it's a fairly temporary setting, um, then simple netting, you know, which is easy to put up and fairly easy to take down and, and you know if you're only going to be using the facility for a week or, or, or two um, that'll be pretty effective at sort of maintaining control um, if it's a more stable situation where you're going to be there for you know all season or what have you then you know moving toward a more hardware cloth you know something more stiff and firm and, and uh, takes you know it's more expensive takes more time to put up but is certainly more permanent and can be permanent over the long term uh, imagine some of the challenges that so many of these facilities we we use them for six weeks or eight weeks and then they sit dormant for the other you know 40 plus weeks a year um, and, and those, those are hard because of course obviously animals take up residence when you know they're 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 not being used um, so trying to maintain them you know more rodent free uh, environment is, is going to be uh, slightly better um, yeah, and I'd say with season extension, that window of time where you're using a pack shed is really, really expanded. People could be using a pack shed from April through November. Um, so I guess that, that also means it's maybe more worth investing in kind of sturdier building materials and more long-term solutions. Right. We don't really think about it, but the, the time to be doing that investment and trying to be really focused on making sure you have good control is more on the November side than the, you know, than the April side in the sense that if anything you can prevent or, or anything you, a producer can do to, to make it more challenging for those pest species to make it through the winter. You know, in Minnesota, let's be real, winter is the hard time of year for creatures. Mm -hmm. So anything you can do to make it harder for them to make it through the winter is better and so taking an extra day and investing in in control um, in November is worth many days in April. Right. All right, so let's move out to the field perspective um, and start with some of the smaller animals like rabbits and moles. Um, what are your best suggestions for controlling these smaller animals? Right, so they are the they're the probably the biggest challenge for most, you know, at least on a commercial setting. You know, for a for a residential gardener, there are some options that make sense on the hundred square foot garden sort of thing. 
Yeah. Uh, so rabbits, you know, things like rabbits, uh, uh, squirrels, uh, voles, which are small little rodents, um, and deer, you know, they're all herbivores. They're all, they all eat plants and vegetables and, and, and uh, they generally live their lives uh, eating vegetables and being generally scared about what's going to eat them. Right. So that's a perspective that's sort of important to, to remember uh, because most of the strategies that we use that are not, you know, something like direct removal um, are all different permutations on how to make that creature uh, nervous or scared so that it won't come back. It'll find farmer, you know, the farmer adjacent to you uh, more attractive or the woods adjacent to you to be more attractive. So things like um, the use of repellents, for instance, will you know, most of them are, are to do a number of different things. You know, they could be mimicking uh, a pain. They could be mimicking um, a predator odor or a scent. You know, so you're essentially trying to signal that that, that creature, you know, go away. Um, there's predators around here. You should, you should try to live your life someplace else. Um, in, my, uh, in my presentations I typically do with other groups, I tend to talk about four, kind of a four-step process. Um, you got to figure out how to change the habitat so maybe changing the environment around the around the garden or or change the cultural practice what you do um, which is it's kind of hard because you're interested in production you know production agriculture um use of so repellents you mean like making making areas that are not your fields but near your fields more attractive or less attractive you know i mean it can go either way right. for instance um um Many of these creatures live their lives being fearful of a of a the hawk that's going to eat them or the the wolf or coyote that's going to come around. So, for instance, um, having a buffer between an agricultural field and the the adjacent woodlot, having an open area that's that's mowed. You know, maybe it's only ten feet, but it's a, an area of exposure so that the creature has to cross this area of exposure to get to what they're interested in. Um, again, they live their lives kind of nervous. Um, you know, admittedly, most of us don't see that deer and think they're nervous, but, but admittedly, if you, if you change up the environment, you make them more exposed, they're more likely to find, if they can, some other place to be. Right. Um, so, so it could be making them more exposed, or it could be planting sacrificial, and we, we can talk about that maybe a little later, planting sacrificial crops or, or lure crops that, uh, that are designed to sort of focus the damage in one place on something that we understand we're going to sacrifice so that they don't go into the things we want to keep, uh, keep nice or, you know, keep for, for production or for harvest. Right. So you, there were four steps. The yep, first so, one is changing the environment. Yep. The second yep. one is repellent. Repellents. Yep. Yep. Repellents. Third one would be exclusion. And that's really your best, frankly, if, if you're, your, your best bet in the long term is exclusion. Mm -hmm. um, most of the wildlife folks recommend electric fence because uh, it, it, can, it, it can be set up temporarily. It depends, of course, a lot of this depends on the circumstances and the environment, but it can be set up in a temporary sort of fashion or, or at least the poles, maybe corner posts can be permanent, but the, the, the other posts in between can be uh, temporary so that it gives you a chance to move your equipment and all of that. But during the growing season, they can be erected um, and then taken down. Um, they tend to be effect the most effective strategy. Um, repellents can be effective, but, but most of them aren't made for human consumption or for, for, for human food. Uh, they, they tend to make things taste terrible or, or, or have some other response. Um, so really, 
from the broadest perspective, electric fences is probably the best exclusion device. I mean, obviously a 10 foot high uh, welded you know, woven wire fence would also work, but that's really expensive and uh, it makes it look more like a, like a garden prison uh, than anything else. Um, you know, of course, there's always the option of removing, removing problem animals and that does, um, you know, that sometimes does work for gardeners if you have a, a limited window where you're, you're focused, focusing that effort. Um, if the environment around you is such that there are really only a few animals that are potentially to control, you know, there are also legal implications and such when it comes to uh, game animals and federally protected animals and state protected animals. So that you, there's a few extra hoops to jump through, but there certainly are programs available to to uh, have, have, you know, for deer, for instance, targeted shoot and those sorts of things, or even inviting friends over during the, you know, during the official hunting season. Again, that's late in the season, so it's often after damage has, you know, has, has well occurred, but certainly you can lower populations, local population levels by doing that sort of thing. Right, and that's something you would just go to your local DNR office for, right, if you felt like you really needed a special hunting permit. Yes. So the person to talk to is your area wildlife manager. Um, your area wildlife manager is the person in your local area to that, that, that does those sorts of things and makes recommendations for the, the wildlife damage crew. Um, that can be found if you just go to the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources website and, and search area wildlife manager, you'll, you'll get to the right spot. Okay. So is that the fourth step then? Just... Yeah, the fourth step is removing the problem animal. And like I said, sometimes we jump right away to the fourth step because, you know, you see the problem and you, you, the little bugger's ticking you off so that you want to remove them. But admittedly, um, that, that sometimes isn't the right solution because if it's rabbits, for instance, often, you know, if, if you have a brushy habitat and very great rabbit, hat, rabbit habitat uh, surrounding uh, the area, uh, you're going to have a never-ending string of rabbits coming right. into the garden. Um, it doesn't matter how many you remove. You know, rabbits can have, you know, easily six of them, six uh, uh, a brood of bunnies, and and they'll do that a couple of times a year. And and boy, that's a lot of active uh, animal removal that might get you down to two, which will overwinter, and the whole process starts over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, like as you said, those steps. It, I think it helped me to visualize that within the IPM triangle, basically right. like at the bottom, making sure you've really done your cultural control, making your system such that you're not going to have problems in the future, and then kind of building up to the final chemical control, which in this case is not chemical, but the, the complete sort of eradication attempt. Right, that's and that's the thing that you try to do. And that'd be great if you could absolutely control the environment all around, you know, the reservoir that acts around your garden. But, but typically, um, you know, you're, you're not able to control that as, as handily. So that's where the, the real problems are. So again, that's maybe part of that cultural practice, making sure that you reduce, you know, if you have a rabbit problem, try to make sure there's not a lot of brushy areas. That's what rabbits love. You know, try to understand where that creature feels most comfortable and where they're breeding um, and try to eliminate that. So I want to talk just a little bit more about these first two steps, the idea of habitat management and then traps, um, or sorry, repellents. So if we kind of imagine a farm landscape, um, I think your point about making sure you have some open areas where animals would feel exposed coming into your 
farm mm -hmm. is a really good point. If someone does have some forested area or the possibility to, to plant some brushy area, is that something you would want to have a distance from your farm? I, like I'm kind of thinking of push-pull dynamics where like you can, by creating good habitat, you can kind of push animals that way towards it, but also by creating really nice habitat near your farm, you could also end up attracting more wildlife than you intended to. Um, so I don't know if you have any perspective on the balance of that, and kind of the ideal farm landscape that you could think of that would help to avoid um, vertebrate pests. Yeah, that really depends on your objectives, of course, because it's, and, and, and you're right, there is, there is a push-pull. The whole issue of, of using sacrificial or lure crops is one of those uh, that fits perfectly in that model. Is, is, is it better to try to attract the, the wildlife to a particular area and eliminate the damage in the, uh, you know, the, the crop that we want to keep? But does that artificially enhance the population such that you're really just creating next year's problem earlier and earlier. Um, and I would say it depends on the circumstances. Uh, certainly having, um, having a, a garden space that is more exposed, that's away from woods is better uh, from, a, from, a wildlife, from a wildlife damage perspective. Um, and then if you have to plant those lure crops, having them isolated from your, 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 your chosen crop is going to result in a, in, a, in a better situation. Um, not, um, I've seen recommendations where they say, yeah, just plant, plant a, a sacrificial crop and ring your garden all the way around. And, and to me, that doesn't make them as exposed as I'd like. I'd like to put those, those sacrificial crops in a place that is ideal for the critter, ideal for deer or rabbits or whatever. Right. But then spatially isolated from your garden space. Um, but again, the whole point of that is not to have this to be um, the best thing in the world, right? You're not making a spa facility for them. You're trying to essentially, this is the consolation prize. This is the, the I'm not quite as exposed. I'm near cover. I'm able to get away. But, but, but this is better than me venturing out anywhere else in the, you know, in the environment, in the garden area where I'm really exposed. So it's really about sort of driving them toward that area. Okay. And I guess we should also say, I think most farmers also enjoy having wildlife around. So, so the goal is not necessarily like complete getting rid of all wildlife, right? So that's another balance of providing habitat while preventing damage. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it would be really easy. Uh, cut down every tree, every bush, every everything, and uh, and then you'll have fewer wildlife problems, or at least you'll only have grassland wildlife problems. But but that's probably not within the context of most farmers. Most of them, you know, love to have that balance. It's just a matter of trying to balance those scales into how much how much production and damage you're willing to tolerate. And that, that's part of the part of the equation is what you're tolerance to the acceptable limit of damage before I, I have to get in the game and I have to do something. Right. Um, so I want to talk a little bit more about the, the second step of repellents as well. There are tons of products on the market. You can buy wolf pee, you can buy all kinds of things. Um, and then there are things sort of like scarecrows and obviously not the, the, the one we think of when we think of it traditional scarecrow, but um, the industry I think has developed to have things that 
move around um, or like emit loud noises at times. What do you think of all of those repellents? Um, are there any that really are proven to be effective? Um, how can people kind of sift through the marketing of different repellent options? Yeah, that's very true. So I think, you know, humans have been using scarecrows since the sort of the dawn of agriculture. And, and uh, you know, when you said something about scarecrow, my mind immediately went to the uh, Wizard of Oz scarecrow. And, and, <laughs> and, and, and really, that would be a perfect scarecrow um, in, in some respects. And, and I would say there's evidence to suggest that they're effective. Okay. Um, I mean, the challenge is, of course, you, your average scarecrow doesn't move around and doesn't make noise. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you know, for, I'll do this for the, the scarecrow issue. Um, you know, the, it's a fairly low effort, low investment, worth a try sort of thing. But again, the goal here is to make that animal uncomfortable because there's a novel item in the environment. So that scarecrow could be literally a scarecrow looking thing, or it could be something that makes noises or something that flashes or emotion sensitive, um, 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 sprinkler set or emotion sensitive sound maker or you know anything that will when that when that organism when that damaged animal is coming into an environment that that that, that makes them uncomfortable right that starts to make noise starts to flash or, or 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 changes position or moves toward them or moves at all the the, the challenge with that is that uh, as in most repellents they will work but they will only work for a limited uh, time until the animal um, acclimatizes to that that different thing, that motion sensitive whatever, or the flashing lights, or what have you. Right. They get habituated, so you have to constantly change it up. So there's no such thing as uh, you know the, the scarecrow that you put in the post and 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 pound into the ground works really well on day one, but day five it's n it's no longer working. Mm -hmm. So you have to always change it. You know, you have to really have to change these things up, and that's really hard because it it means they're as a, as a producer, you have to be actively involved in constantly changing it up. You know, I'll offer from the wildlife perspective, they don't have anything else to do. So they're, they're thinking about how to get to those uh, delicious or uh, wonderful crops that you're producing 24 uh, seven. Repellents, onto repellents, uh, mm -hmm. you asked about those as well, right? They come in a lot of different forms. Um, they have highly variable effectiveness, um, and it depends on a lot of different things like the density of the target animal and, and the animal's past experience with the repellent and what's going on in the local environment, last time it rained, and time since application, all of those things. Um, the, the key, of course, is to read the label because most of them are not designed for food plants. They're, they're you know, they're developed a base to, to, to either elicit in the animal some pain or some predator scent. So sometimes, you know, they use putrefied egg solids or things that smell really terrible uh, to a mammal. Um, mm -hmm. so, so, so obviously those don't work on your, on your, on your plants or on your vegetables. Um, but potentially as a border around your fields. As a potential as a border around the fields uh, may work. Um, the, the, the difficulty is, is you'll have to refresh that fairly frequently because as soon as the creatures figure out that all they need to do is get through this thing that doesn't smell very well, you know, very nice, they can get to the good stuff. And I'm pretty sure um, anyone who, uh, any human who's sensitive to smells has, has, has held their breath as they walk through uh, the perfume area of a department store uh, and gotten to this, you know, the good stuff, the stuff that they were shopping for. And, you know, so it's, it would be kind of a similar analogy that uh, once the critter figures out um, they need to just get through that, they, they will do that. Um, a lot of the studies have shown that the repellents uh, are most effective when they are new because creatures have this, this neophobia of something that's new. And then once they get 
acclimatize to them, they are less uh, less effective. So, you know, area repellents like like the border or like little sachets you hang in the trees nearby, um, a little tougher for vegetable gardeners because they're they're they're, they're not going to be as effective. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the best time to apply it is before the damage starts, uh, and, uh, and and then reapply. You know, a growing plant. Um, if you apply a, a repellent, the plant grows six inches. There's that six inches, which is the most succulent and doesn't have any of the repellent on it. So, so that's a, a vulnerable piece of the plant. Um, right. So, so that's the you know there are a lot of challenges, and they're not fences. You know, if if you have a high deer population, you know, hungry deer will eat just about anything, and uh, so often repellents are, are, are fantastic in the short-term, small-scale um, situation where you have low to moderate damage in a small area, small number of plants to protect, um, and, and, and it's while you're getting something else developed, um, you know, while you're developing some other part of your plan. Now, maybe that's enough to get you through the harvest of that particular um, plant or a, a, a product, but it might not be. Mm -hmm. and, a, and a quick note about the, the whole coyote wolf um, urine thing. Um, there's, there's a little bit of evidence that um, those can be effective depending upon uh, an animal's previous experience with those creatures. Um, but again, it's not something that is going to peg in the 80 to 90% effectiveness uh, range. It's, it's much less than that. Okay. So, so it sounds like you're really advocating for fences and that these other pieces are important, but long-term, if you're really, really having problems with vertebrate pest control, that a fence may be what you need to invest in. Yeah, that's unfortunately that, that that's the only long-term mm -hmm. solution that definitely works. Um, and that we have lots of evidence that suggests it will, it will work consistently. Um, it is high maintenance and, and, you know, like I said, the, the simplest is an electrified fence and this is not just the single strand that you might use for your, your horses or your cattle or what have you. They're, they're the wildlife fences, um, I know with a deer fence, they, mul they recommend multiple strands at, at, uh, at eight inch intervals starting at about a foot off the ground um, up to uh, almost, you know, three and a half, four feet off the ground. And of course, if you have rabbits or woodchucks or those sorts of critters, well then, the bottom two strands are, are four inches off the ground, eight inches off the ground, and then that 12 inch off the ground. Mm -hmm. um, and they, they, they are effective. They do take a lot of maintenance. You know, you have to, if the mow, you have to, well, anyone who's familiar with fencing knows that you have to keep that area fairly clear of vegetation that will short out the system. So mm -hmm. um, there are solutions, there are uh, uh, a grant program available from the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. Um, they have a wildlife damage management program that provides um, emergency damage abatement materials and cost sharing for fencing and that sort of thing and it you know it ranges of course depending upon the producer but it can be up to five thousand dollars for fencing and that sort of thing so um, if you're if you're interested in that again the, the DNR's website would be a, a great place to, to start looking for that um, uh, Eric Nelson leads that and you can probably just search for wildlife damage management program and, and get that yeah and that's I've seen quite a few farmers using that program. So it's, I don't know that how well known it is, but I know that farmers have had success with it and um, quite a few farmers have actually gotten the full $5,000 cost share. So it's definitely a program that's worth looking into. 
So I think that was everything I wanted to ask about. Do you have anything else you want to add or any kind of final closing thoughts? Uh, well, I like I, I think it's been pretty clear. I, I'm a strong advocate of wildlife, and I love love seeing wildlife in my yard. But admittedly, that there always are a few challenges uh, when they start to eat uh, the vegetables that we've spent time growing, and it's a real bite when it's a commercial uh, grower. So, um, I guess I'd say just just figure out how much you're going to tolerate, and then uh, you know uh, engage in your integrated pest management system as early as possible, um, especially with wildlife, with uh, you know, it being all seasonal reproduction and they, they start breeding early. And so the, the more you can do before the breeding season, the better off you're gonna be. Great, all right, well, thank you so much. It's been great.